Welcome to the PK Podcast. This is Peter King. I'm the host of the show. And in today's episode, I sit down with J.D. Rutherford, who is an ex-con. This story is unbelievable. J.D. uh, is someone I met via LinkedIn, I think, which I hardly ever check. But for some reason, uh, the other day, I did and saw his name, saw his profile and reached out to him. And he agreed to be on the show. And man, am I glad that I did because his story is powerful. So uh, I'm not going to give you much more than that. It is an incredible journey of uh, reinvention and coming from the depths of mental and uh, physical despair to where he is today, which is in service of others. It's, uh, It's a harrowing journey, and I... I'm very excited about sharing this one with you. So check it out. Let me know what you think. Here we are with J.D. Rutherford. All right, I'm sitting here with J.D. Rutherford. Thanks for joining me today, J.D. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I very uh, no no uh, no offense to LinkedIn, but I very rarely net you know get hooked up with people on LinkedIn every now and then. But for whatever reason. I was on it uh, a little bit ago, and and your profile, I'm, I can't even remember how we got synced up, but your, I went to check out your profile, and I was like, man, I got to talk to this guy. So, um, you know, I've already shared a couple of calls, but um, I don't really know a lot about your background just yet. I kind of wanted to save it for this call. So give us uh, a little bit of a, why don't you give us a brief overview about sort of who you are and what you're up to today, and then we'll dive in a little bit into your background story well um i was i was born and raised in southeast los angeles and um pretty much my stomping grounds all the way up until when i was in my 20s were you know uh, southeast los angeles in the north orange county area um come from a pretty low middle class working family you know my mom and my mom worked at a at a jack-in-the-box when we were growing up, my father was a dock worker in, in East Los Angeles. So growing up, we didn't wasn't much of a real privileged environment. We really didn't have, you know, a whole lot what a lot of other kids would have. And, you know, it was it was kind of rough. You know, we grew up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of young families or single mothers. So there was there was a lot of kids in the community that, that I grew up in and it was it was it was pretty you know the the times were a little different back then. I mean I'm 44 years old right now, so growing up in that environment it was it was very, you know there was you had the you know I mean masculine and feminine was a lot more defined back then. It's it's kind of like blurred lines nowadays, but I mean back then we had you know you had your bullies and you had your fist fights and and anytime you know me or another kid or two kids would have a problem their dads would get together and you know would have the kids go out on the front greens they called it and duke it out you know mm. and the, the kids hands. the kids did or the dads did kids the kids sometimes the dads would too you yeah. know it's just it's just kind of environment we grew up in and and there was there was a lot there was bullying going on and there was you know, usually, usually when you had the bullies, it was bullies come bullying coming from kids that that moms and dads would be like, "Oh, that's not my little angels, the bully. It's your kid that's a problem." You know. Mm-hmm. So whenever smaller kids like myself would fight back, it would it would usually end badly for us. It would make us out to look like we were the bad guys. Mm. So this kind of it was very physical. The kind of environment that I grew up in and the upbringing that I was grew up in. Yeah. You know. 
So, so uh, you were dealing a lot with that, and then you eventually, as you shared with me before, you eventually, when did you first go to jail? How old were you when that happened? Because obviously you've already shared that with me, and that's part of your, your backstory. Well, I was the first arrested at um, 14 for, for a stolen car and got in quite a bit of trouble over that. But I actually started to really do prison time when I was around 19. Okay. Um, so were your parents both home pretty much your whole upbringing? I mean, obviously you mentioned both of them, but were they around? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mo both parents were, were in the house. Uh, you know, I know, I know a lot of people, they, they, they run to these theories and stuff that broken homes make broken children, but that's not always the case. Sure. You know, there's a lot of, I could point out, you know, hundreds of examples of, of kids that grew up in a complete home. It just made the choice. And I mean, a little bit later on, I'll talk to you more about where my philosophies and theories and, and where my er target areas of, of, of helping people overcome these, you know, these labels and stuff they put on themselves. But I come from a complete home. There, there was no, you know, mom's drunk boyfriend of the week type of stuff. You know, dad out of the picture. You know, both parents were there physically you know but like mentally for the most part they weren't there because both parents worked worked their their butts off to make ends meet so it was always it was a pretty stressful environment i, I can't say that it was like leave it to beaver but at the same time it wasn't you know it wasn't a broken home yeah um do you feel like that's maybe where some of your aggression came from is just not really getting their time and presence um Maybe. I, I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. I think it has a lot to do with, you know, in in the home, it wasn't really, I mean, there was a lot of love there, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, there was a lot, you could, there was a lot of tension all the time because it was always trying to scrape by to make sure that we made it, to make sure we had food on the table, the lights stayed on and a roof was over our head. And so there was a lot of, you know, in a lot of working class families like that, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of tension, you know. Mm -hmm. Your dad, dad comes home, he doesn't want to do nothing but just, you know, plop on the chair, watch some TV, and then go to bed and yeah. repeat the process the next day. Yeah. And it's the same thing with my mother because she worked a full-time job as an employee at Jack in the Box. So, Gotcha. So you said uh, at 14, you said you stole a car. What? Uh, walk me through that a little bit. Did Were you involved with other... Uh, other kids that did this or did you do it on your own what was what was the story there yeah I mean I ran around with a lot of like street kids mostly like gang member types or, or you know the thug the whole thug mentality you know raging against the machine or or so to speak um, a lot of these kids were from various different different gangs different ethnic backgrounds but you know we all kind of hung together because in, in, in a lot of the area that I grew up with, it was pretty much a melting pot. A lot of Hispanic, whites, you know, a couple of African-American families, but mostly like Hispanic and whites and, and some Asian people, Filipino and stuff. So we all kind of ran together for the most part. And, you know, I wasn't really much a gang member at the time, but running around with a lot of these guys as a 14-year-old kid and a lot of them were older, it was always a, a, a situation of I'm trying to impress them. Yeah. Trying to, I'm trying to make myself look a lot better to them. So we were broke down at this one. 
we were trying to go to a party and we the car we were in had run out of gas because I guess the gas gauge on his car wasn't functioning properly so he didn't know he was out of gas so we ran out of gas and we took off somewhere and I was looking in a car we were gonna siphon some gas out of cars and I looked into a car and I saw the keys were in there so I just told these guys I said I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the car and drive it over there you know I thought it was cool and I was impressing them and so we all you know me and this guy we, we climbed in the car and the other guy took off and well we got pulled over by the cops mm. and, but my, my whole thing was is I was like you know this guy don't know anything I picked him up on the side of the road and and I just stole the car but they took him to jail because he was an adult and they they took me to the police station but then released me to my parents oh well, so did he get what happened to him he got sent to the county jail oh man so you got released right away relatively quickly uh, what how did your parents respond to that well, not so good, you know. I mean, my dad was pretty pissed off. Right. But um, you know, it was uh. The the one thing about that whole thing was is that, you know, the police were coming at my father and they're like, "Well, we're gonna charge your son with grand theft auto if he doesn't testify against this dude that was in the car with him." Mm. My dad's like, "Well, you know, my son ain't no rat, so don't think that you're gonna get him to rat. So it looks like he's gonna have to go to jail." And I'm wow. sitting there thinking. You know, and, and and I'm thinking, okay, right, I guess I got to go to jail because I just didn't feel right about, you know, taking the stands against somebody that, I mean, quite honestly, it wasn't even really him that initiated anything. If anybody should be going to jail, it should have been me. Yeah. So I, you know, the, the so the officers took me aside and they said, you know, you realize you're going to go to juvenile hall. And they told me all the horror stories and everything like that and said that, you know, you're going to have to testify against this guy. I said, I'm not testifying against anybody. You know, I'm the one that stole the car. So if anybody should be testifying against anyone, somebody should be testifying against me. So they kind of blew out their whole case and they eventually dropped the charges on that guy. Huh. And what the judge, what the judge did with me is he made me do like community service and all that. So, I mean, I didn't have no record or nothing. 14 years old. Right. So, you know, all the, the fear tactics and everything that they tried didn't work. So I guess it's kind of like what what started to trigger more of my criminal behavior, which I looked at it like, you know, they they, they scare you with all these things, but it doesn't really come out to be true. Ah. So I kind of got a little shut down, put a little wall up in front of me in, in regards to, to the law and everything. Became very um, aggressive towards law enforcement and stuff to where... I just shut down. I wouldn't tell them nothing. I wouldn't talk. To them. I didn't disrespect them or call them names, but I would just never. I'm not talking to you. I got nothing to say. And, you know, where's my lawyer? That kind of thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. 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 Because you essentially, I mean, from your perspective, felt like maybe you just got away with it. Like that, you got a slap on the wrist and right back out. So I, I could see how that would be your concluding thought that it's just all, you know, threats and not a lot of consequence. Exactly. Okay, so you take you take that mentality into fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old. So, are you still doing you know illegal stuff, or are you? You said that you got um, that you went to prison at nineteen. Yeah, is that right? What what happened there? Well, um, at nineteen, I you know I was I was involved in a lot of like stolen property and stuff because I was involved in the distribution of narcotics 
various different things and and a lot of stolen property you know stuff that people would bring me that they would what what they would we would call clucking off for for you know a little bit of to score some dope and bring you know somebody's radios or tools or cars or whatever it was and they would you know trade it in for 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 drugs so that was <coughs> excuse me mine was was always that I like to buy all this stuff and I was dealing with various other people and we we had you know swap meets vendor uh, swap meet sites set up and various different pawn shops that, that people that I knew owned and, and that's where we would fence a lot of that stuff off or get rid of it mm. are were so, you were, were you thinking at all of the you know people that you were stealing from or potentially you know putting into harm's way or anything like that like what's what's the mentality at that I'm trying to think of you know the typical adolescent male um, in that environment like give me an idea of what the mentality is and why you're doing what you're doing and and are you at all thinking about how this is affecting other people well in, in, in order to in order to understand what my mind was thinking or what it wasn't thinking at the time we would have to back it up a little bit to when I was 14 again okay um, and this 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 part right here is probably the most you know dramatic traumatic event that has ever happened in my life so stealing the car and all that was was one thing and and there was a lot of punishment that came with it and a lot of verbal abuse that was coming from my dad and and this was in the beginning of the summer when I was 14 mind you so by the end of the summer I was getting ready to go back to school and going to school and everything and I was ditching and I was running you know ditching school and going away from it well to make a long story short uh, I ended up running away from home when I was 14 because I was finally like, you know what, I'm not going to sit there and listen to my, my father constantly threaten me with going to juvenile hall and making me a, a, a ward of the court or incorrigible or whatever they called it back then. I'm not going to go through that anymore, so I'm just going to run the streets. You know, and I ran the streets for a little while. Well, I was gone for about a week, and my father had found me. And when he was taking me home, I told him, you're never going to keep me here. And he's like, well, I'll, you know what I mean? I'll, 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 bar, I'll, I'll, bar, I'll put bars on your windows. I said, I'll cut through the roof. He goes, well, I'll chain you to the wall. I said, I'll knock my own foot off to get out. I go, you're not going to keep me at home. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with all of you. I just want to be away from all of you. Hmm. So he was finally like, fine. He, t- he looked over at my uncle and he said, let the little mother effer out. Let him out. Let him, let him see what the streets are about. So they let me out. Well, I ran around the streets for a few more days until finally things were going so bad. At that time, I was sleeping in a park, and I had remembered somebody that offered a helping hand for me. You know, a couple of weeks back, that me and some some other kids were boosted in a Kmart, and this guy said, "You know what? Here, I'll help you get off the streets. You know, something to eat, some place, you know, warm to stay, and all that stuff like that." And you know, I, at the time, I was just like, yeah, I don't need you, I don't need you. But then now I remember I had his number, and I called him, and he took me to this place. Well, once I got to this place, you know, there were a couple of guys there. There was a lady there for for the beginning, and then she left, and then the guy that brought me there left. And then the scene just started getting really weird. It started to feel really uncomfortable. Well, I'm sorry, and, what, what kind of place are you talking about? Like a? It was just a house. Okay. It was a house, you okay. know. And, you know, there was a couple of guys that were there, and they were very, 
the beginning they seemed cool and everything like you know it was a hangout spot you had a little air hockey thing going on there and all that stuff and then it just started to get weird it started to feel weird and i uh i was like well you know what i gotta go home so i'm gonna see you guys later and the one guy's like no you don't and i go well what do you mean he goes you're you don't got a home you live in the streets you know we know all about you and everything i go no you're wrong you're wrong i i I gotta be home i gotta go to school and everything like that and they're like well you're not leaving well there's a little bit of a scuffle and i got beat up and before i knew it i was basically held captive in this place Hmm. and there was another there was another boy in there and we were held against our will in this room and basically what was told to me is that we had to perform various different sexual acts with each other on film or you know they were just going to kill they were going to kill me they were going to get rid of me Damn. and then I'm like I'm not doing nothing I said you know I mean I'm not a you know a gay person I use the other names I'm not going to really use on your show but I, I said I'm not like that and the one guy's like well we're gonna we're gonna give you a little example of what'll happen to you if you don't you know if you don't cooperate if you don't go with the flow and they basically raped this kid in front of me you know in a really bad way and you know they put us through a lot of I was I was probably stuck in this place for about two weeks and they put us through a lot of very intensive physical and mental abuse you know sometimes almost to the point of starvation injecting us with various different drugs and and all of this stuff and and I, I mean, I got a book coming out next year that's going to be talking about all of this stuff. But the the the, the physical and, and, and sexual abuse that I had gotten from these people was so bad that it, it messed up my mind where I was luckily, you know, not so much for this kid. And to this day, I don't know who this other kid was because he started to choke on something and he started looked like it appeared like he was dying. He was turning blue. And I was screaming, and, and for a long time, for a couple hours, nobody was coming. And I was yelling, I started banging on the walls, and then finally one of these guys came in, started yelling at me, and started kicking me until I was telling him, look, 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 help him, help him. And he just looked over at the kid like like it was nothing, and he just him and the other guy grabbed the kid and drug him out. And they left the door open. And when all this was going on, I managed to get away. And get out, and and it was so surreal how I I had was going through the the house, and it was almost like slow motion. I don't know if you ever experienced that in a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's almost like slow motion. You can hear your heart beating, and you can't hear nothing else, and you're so traumatized, and you're in such fear that I was able to get to the door and get out without any problem from anyone. And I took off, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and finally. I managed to link back up with my father and they took me to the hospital, you know, and they pumped my stomach out and they ran all kinds of fluids through me. And right. How how did your father receive you? He was, he was upset at himself. He, um, was crying. It was the first time I seen him cry in a long time. And, and he was blaming himself and, and, you know, thought that it was his fault and he should have never let me run the streets or, or do any of that stuff. And, you know, we're going to the going to the hospital. They they basically told my dad is it's it's much harder to see if a boy has been sexually abused than it is on a girl. It's it's harder to un, to know. Only the the boy would know. You know what exactly they did, and they tried to ask me. You know, what, how did they touch you? Where did they 
excuse me, where did they touch you? And, and I wasn't wanting to talk to him because it was so embarrassing and I was so ashamed, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I was just like, well, I, I, I just shut down. I go, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. And, and a lot of it I did, I blocked off for a long time, you know? Uh, real quick, you said it's harder just because of the physical evidence, you mean? Yeah, well, you know, a, a female, a, a girl that's been sexually abused, you know, usually the hymen is broken or something like that, and they can tell if they've actually been penetrated. Mm. Or boy, you know, it's it's they would have to look for like, of course, anal penetration and stuff, and and sometimes it's not so easy to see if that's or not. Got it. I I wasn't sure if you meant that or if you meant like psychologically or what have you. Um, right. So so your father ends up taking you to the hospital yeah um and and then what happens after the hospital um basically you know the 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 social worker at at the hospital told my father that he should you know file some kind of a police report but the the question with in doing that was we would have to find, you know, the address and it, and it took a long time for me to find out where the house was at. Yeah. For the most part, I couldn't really find the house exactly. So when he got a hold of the cops, he's trying to talk to the cops and the cops basically weren't trying to hear it. They weren't trying to do anything about it. And they're like, well, your son's a, your son's a, a, a little deviant and runs around the streets. He causes all kinds of problems, stuff like that. How do you know he ain't lying? He goes, I know my son ain't lying. I could see it in his face. Something bad happened to him. You know, you could you just know when something when something bad happens to your kid. Yeah. The cops weren't trying to do anything about it, and they were. You know, we were trying to figure out where these people were, and we spent a few days looking for them. Well, we managed to see one of these guys at a gas station getting gas in a car. So my dad took the license plate number down and everything, and then tried to pass that to the cops, and the cops the cops wouldn't accept it wait so you were with your dad at the gas station and you saw one of the guys yeah I saw the i saw the guy I said there he is. you know there he is there's one of them right there and my dad's like i'm not gonna he's you know he was he was my dad was very smart when it came to a lot of, a lot of stuff like that he was very very he was able to stay calm and, and he didn't really lead with his feelings and, and his emotions so much he was just he was taking breaths and everything, and he's like, what to do? And he's shaking real bad, and then he, he went and grabbed a pen out of the glove box and wrote the license plate number down. Well, when they when they got the license plate, he tried to pass that on to the cops. Cops didn't want to do anything about it. Did they see you, did they see you at all? The cops? No, the, the, the perpetrators. No, he didn't see me. Uh, the guy didn't see me. I mean, it was one of the scariest moments of my life to see that person again. I can't even imagine that. Damn. So he... uh. My dad tried to pass it on to the cops. The cops weren't willing to do anything about it, um, of which further shut me down from the law. I was going to say, geez, yeah, wow. So, but my dad did have another police officer friend because my dad was a Pop Warner football coach. He volunteered as a football coach in the community, and he was coaching this kid whose father was a police officer. So my grandfather had actually got involved, and, and they said, well, give the license plate number to him. We'll figure out where he is. Well, <clears throat> they got the license. They figured out who the guy was. And since the police weren't going to do anything about it, my grandfather and father did something about it. Mm. Is that something and they, you're, you're willing to share? Or, or, you know, I don't want to put... I mean, my, my father and grandfather are long deceased now. Okay. And 
for my entire life, I could never speak about this because of what they did. Mm. They basically took this man and they tortured him and they killed him. They were, he was trying. They were my grandfather was trying to get him to give up more information. They killed him. Yeah, they killed him. Oh my god! Wow, vigilante justice. Um, so, how, how does that? Out of curiosity, like how did how did that make you feel that they went to basically? defend your honor if you will i believe that if if my grandfather and father were willing to go through such great lengths in order to exact family justice for me i i and at, at that point on i never gave my parents any really any trouble but i was a lot i was pretty messed up in the head by that point Damn. and i was aging a lot of self-destructive behavior but it wasn't so much of rebelling against my family anymore because it kind of in a sense, it, it, it opened me up to see that, you know, that my father loved me, cared about me. My grandfather loved me and cared about me. And it was just like both of them were they're from a different time period. Yeah. They're just like, we have to deal with this situation because of what they did to him. You know, he just like ruined him for life. Probably my grandfather was telling my dad. Man. So they they did it for that reason. And it made me feel like it didn't bring me any peace. You know, it didn't bring me any, wow, you know, that's great. You know, my, my grandfather and father killed this, this, you know, scumbag. It didn't really bring me any peace. It just, because I knew the other people were still out there, number one, because they never did find anyone else. But it never really brought me any peace of mind. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like always in the back of my mind. And there were times because they would choke me. You know, they would they would hold me down and, and throw pillows over my face and stuff. And I'm sorry, who are you you're talking about? Your dad? The captors. No, the captors, the oh, people gotcha, that gotcha. just just for fun. I mean, they would they would do a lot of weird stuff and a lot of crazy things. I mean, they were urinating on us and all, all just it was it was probably like I said, it, the experience itself to this very day, I will still wake up like I'm choking. And if people are trying to say, oh, you got sleep ambia, ambia or something like that. And I go, no, it, it's it's a psychological thing. Like I'm seriously repeating the same nightmare over and over and over again. Oh, that's so fucked up. All right. I'm sorry that you've dealt with all this. This is pretty traumatic. Um, so so then at around 19, I, I mean, obviously you can yeah. see you can see the mind of, of a young man who's who's not getting his needs met at home from an emotional you know, mental standpoint, you're looking right. for validation out, out in the world, trying to live up to, you know, the, the older kids in the gang and trying to press them, et cetera. Um, I mean, I've talked a lot about masculinity and, and the development of young men. And this is, this is a very, very real issue for many adolescents. And, um, when they're not given the proper guidance and, and support, it can be, you know, that, that flame inside turns into wildfire. And it sounds like that's what's happened here. So then you took that, you had these incredibly traumatic experiences. You didn't feel like law enforcement was really on your side. And so so then what happened from there? Or did, did we cover the full story then of the... Well, yeah, it's a member of, that's what I said. I, I, I backed it up because you were asking me, yeah. um, you know, when, when I was dealing in the stolen property and selling drugs, you know, what about the victims, the people that own the stuff and everything like that? Well, like I said, it, it was my mind was so messed up and so on self-destruct mode 
they really nothing mattered so much. You know, it was it was it was like I didn't personally go into people's homes and I didn't personally rob old ladies or rob innocent family members, families and 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 kids and stuff like that. It was my I didn't know where the property was coming from because I didn't actually physically steal it. You know, so it was never the thought never really crossed my mind or, you know, where are these people getting this stuff from? You know, until until like later on down the road I started to think about all the things that I did. Mm. But I mean this whole experience, the the thing that happened to me when I was fourteen, like it messed me up in a way it's like I I it 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 ruined my it ruined me having any like healthy relationships with girlfriends. I mean, I went in and out, you know, went through in one girlfriend and out the other yeah. over and over and over again because it just all that stuff did a lot of messed me up in a way. It's just like, how am I supposed to love a woman? And, and, and for a long time, I struggled with, you know, if these people had made me turn me into some kind of a gay man or something like that, of which I'm not. I mean, I'm not attracted to men at all. Yeah. But it's just it. It's a lot of that stuff. It as a kid, man, it, it confuses you, and it makes you wonder. Like, am I am I a part of my language? Am I a fag now? Am I not a fag? I mean, if I was forced to do that, does that make me gay? Does that not make me gay? And and I can't seek out counseling because of what my grandfather and father did. Mm-hmm. So I can't get any of these questions answered. So it's just like I struggled with this this stuff for so long, and I had so many bad relationships. I mean, I don't really. I have a son out there that I don't know. I've never seen him. But other than that, I've never been married. I I don't have any family. I've never had a family. You know, I've always wanted that. But I've just never really known how to love how to love a woman because of all the the trauma and everything that I went through and then the inability to deal with it or to talk about it for so long. Um. So you're talking about having a hard time loving women. I, I mean, the the captors that you dealt with were all men correct well there was one woman there and i saw her like twice and the most scariest face in the world was her face because it was just like such a kind face but so evil if that makes sense yeah, yeah. so kind and it's so evil and deep inside of her that you know, because I remember I was kind of like groggy and I was I was sitting like that and they had me they had me kind of like tied tied up or cuffed up or what it was. But I was so groggy and and out of they must have hit me with something. They must have injected me with something. So and then I'm looking this woman's looking like right into my face. She's like right here in my face looking at me and she's like, hey, honey, are you OK? How are you? Are you OK? You you OK? And how are you feeling? Can can you? you know, can you hear me and stuff like that? And, and I'm just looking at her and she just like, she's like, man, you guys fucked this kid up too bad. Look at his face is all messed up. Just, just, just dump him. Wow. Fuck. Oh basically, my God. Yeah, dump him. Like, obviously, you know, now that I'm thinking about it years later, that means basically they were going to kill me. Yeah. You know, wow. the one, one like, no, 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 no. You know, we'll just, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll put a mask on them or something, laughing and thinking it's funny and like brushing my hair like that. And yeah, you can be all right, kid. You're gonna be all right. It was just a weird. The whole thing was was crazy. It just to think of that there's so many of these kind of people out there in the world, yeah. and we hear about it all the time. I mean, this ain't probably ain't nothing new. We hear about it all the time. 
You know, it just had like it happened in Ohio several years back. If you remember that one guy had those girls down there in the yeah. dungeon for like ten yeah. years. Another guy on the West Coast had 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 some girl in in his house for eighteen. She actually bore a couple of his kids. Oh you know this God. this it's crazy. It is crazy. So I mean, I'm I've I've talked with people before who have dealt with serious trauma uh, on par with this. This is this is pretty bad. I mean, obviously this is crazy. I'm I'm just so impressed with your ability to like string two sentences together. I don't mean to like light, you know, I'm not trying to be insensitive or whatever, but I'm, I'm just amazed at your ability to be able to recollect, to be able to articulate what happened, to be able to um, just even have a, a conversation. I can't even imagine how difficult it's been to try to navigate through all that so how did you i mean we've had a brief conversation about some of the things that you've learned in prison and how in an ironic well maybe not necessarily ironic but how you learned in prison how to right the ship a little bit is that really where you started to get your feet on solid ground again how do you how do you manage day-to-day life with all of that uh having gone through all of that experience well you know like i said Spending a lot of time in prison going back to 19 and, and, you know, you know, like I said, not really being concerned with it wasn't that I was I had, you know, I had no concern or I didn't care about people, you know, whose stolen property and stuff was going on or anything like that. It's just that <clears throat> you get so caught up in this criminal lifestyle, you don't think about a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and going in and out of prison for that time. And, and prison was a very dangerous and violent place. So. Over the over the over the over the years, when I started to go into prison, I started to use my survivor skills. It's it's like I, I was so numb to what because of what had happened to me. It's like I didn't really care if I lived or died, so I really didn't have any fear. So that's a plus when you're going into the prison setting. If you have no fear, then basically you can you can move through that with 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 a lot more ease and com- and comfort than somebody that's in there scared out of their mind because somebody that's scared out of their mind is going to succumb to the environment and the, the prison's going to collapse on top of them. Mm. For me, it, it didn't work that way. It was like I was a survivor of, of something that was probably the most horrible experience that anybody can endure, and and it didn't kill me. So it gave me like this, this invincibility type of thing. It's just like I could do this whole prison thing and end I never believed that I was going to live as long as I did, Pete. It was just like I thought maybe I would be dead by 25, by 26. So I was living a criminal lifestyle inside of the prison and outside of the prison. I was very much involved in the gangs in the prison system, in the drug trade, illegal drug trade going on in there, you know, the the knives, the riots, all that stuff. I get out of prison, I'd be right back in the middle of it on the streets, boom, right back in prison again. Can I ask you, is, was, is there, you mentioned uh, earlier that this, the stuff that you, the stolen property that you were dealing with, you didn't even steal it. Were you part of a more organized system that, you know, criminal system where, you know, some guys were doing the stealing, other guys were doing the distributing and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's all, it's all connected together because it's all involved in the illegal drug trade, of course. So everybody's wanting to get a piece of the pie, and it all comes back to drugs, and it all comes back to money. Since drugs makes money, people can either come and get the drugs and use them because they're drug users, or they can come and get them to distribute them to make cash. 
and it's quick and it's easy and it's fast cash and it's a lot of cash. You'd be surprised what kind of people are involved in a lot of this stuff, you know? Uh, in what way? What? Why? Well, just because, you know, you got various different people that are just regular, average, everyday Joes that are that are running around in there that, that come out from, you know, maybe Glendora or Beverly Hills or places like that or, you know, the, the Simi Valley or whatnot. And they're, you know, husband, three kids, white picket fence. You know, works downtown as an accountant or some kind of law firm, and they're involved in it in some way, shape, or form. It's just as a user, you know, or as a distributor. Well, they, you know, they'll 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 deal with like some people were stealing like identities and dealing in identities. Other people were mm. were giving stuff over that was, um, you know, property or or there would even be people that would purchase narcotics from down there and they would distribute it out to their friends and their colleagues or whatnot, or even sold it under, under the table. Hmm. So is this, um, I, I mean, who's running these organizations? What, you know, are just you... nobody's really, I mean, it, it, unless you're part of like organized crime in some way. Yeah. I mean, we weren't, we were just street kids doing, dealing with it all. But just, just basically the dominoes, the chains, gotcha. links. Chains. So, some, yeah. so somebody's stealing and he, they get good at that or whatever, and then they pass it off to somebody else yeah. who's going to go hawk it off somewhere kind of a thing, right? Right. Okay. And then, and that was my, I mean, that was my lifestyle. And, and like I said, like, remember I told you, uh, I think that part of me had died. Most of me died when I was 14, you know, because of everything that happened. Yeah. So kind of like I was a zombie walking through the land of the living. And when I was like 25 or 26, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to live any longer, that much longer. And I, I was even in a high speed pursuit at the age of 26, you know, with the whole camera and the, the, the helicopter. And, and I was, I was, I was wanting to let that be the end of it. And I got out and I took off running and, when I got to the other side, these cops surrounded me, and I just attacked them and started fighting with the cops. And I was hoping that they were going to shoot me or kill me or just end the misery right there. Wow. But it, I ended up getting, you know, sent sent back to the state prison in California for uh, evading, uh, reckless driving, high speed pursuit, stolen car, various different other crimes, assaulting a police officer, resisting arrest, and <clears throat> so when I got out. I got out in 2003. That was in 2000. I got out in 2003, and I did good for a little while. My parents were living in Vegas, and then uh, I ended up going right back again. And my grandfather was already dead because my grandfather died back in you know 1990, a couple of years after this whole thing happened when I was a kid. But my father, on my, this last prison term in 2004, my father died. So when he died, it kind of everything that that had happened came back to the surface mm -hmm. and I started reliving it it all and it was so graphic and so vivid I started writing it all down and everything and I, I went into like a really deep depression because of it and then I finally I tried to talk to a, a, a specialist in the prison system about it about what happened and I told him the story and when I started to tell him about it he was just like He's like, look, I got to go meet with somebody else, so I'm gonna have to come back to you, and 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 we'll talk we'll talk more about it later. Well, he never came back, you know. Hmm. So then I kind of shut down again, and 
I held on to this stuff and I never told anybody about it because I felt so ashamed. Uh, I wanted to talk to a doctor because I wanted to because I was really grieving the loss of my father at that point. You know, this was in 2005, 2006, that area. Mm -hmm. And I was really grieving the loss of my father. So I needed somebody to talk to. Actually, no, it was 2006. That's right. I needed to talk to somebody about it and tell them what happened. And, and, you know, even my father had sent me a letter before he died. He said, get some help. He goes, I'm not going to be around much longer. Hmm. So get some help. I wish I should have. I wish instead of what we did, we should have just sent you to go get you help. He's like, I feel like that me and your grandfather didn't do you any good. And I'm sorry for that. Hmm. Wow. I'm going to be gone soon. So you can go ahead and get some help. You could talk about this now. Wow. Talk about what we did. Let it let it all out. And I, I didn't really do it until several years later. Yeah. Until 2012. Um, like I said, I was running on empty, running on fumes. Completely wore down. I was 38 years old. I felt like I wasted my entire life in, in crime and in drugs and in gangs and, and, and living this lifestyle, fighting for this cause that, that I didn't even really know what the cause was. And, and all this stuff, I remember... My mother was living in Texas at the time, and my sisters were all out there, and I was living in Amarillo for a minute, Amarillo, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was I woke up one morning, I looked in the mirror, and I was 38 years old, living in a cheap motel, working at a car wash. And I, I thought that I didn't really want to live anymore. I, I contemplated taking my life at that point, but I felt that you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. So I was going to, I was going to die in a life of crime. So I just went on a straight knucklehead crime spree at that point. And <laughs> it ended with me getting uh, indicted on a federal bank robbery case. So I walked into a Walmart in El Reno, Oklahoma, demanded that the teller at the, the bank inside the crowded Walmart on a Friday night, give me all the money and walked out and got away. Well, how I was caught later was some girl in a hotel room back in Amarillo, Texas, tried to turn me in for the reward. So I got caught. But it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. So what happened? So you went to prison after that? Yeah, I got caught, by the, picked up by the FBI. And um, when the FBI was interviewing me, he says, so, you know, you wanted to talk to us. You know, what do you got to tell us? I said, well, when I was 14 years old, I was I was sexually abused and I was held captive I started going into the whole story and this guy's just listening and this lady's listening. They're both just sitting there. And at the end of it all, he looked up and he goes, what does that got to do with a bank robbery? Oh, I said, it's got everything to do with that bank robbery. Yeah. Oh, it's just a shame that you don't understand what I'm saying to you. Yeah. He goes, well, I think maybe he goes, you're going to go away for a little while. You know that, right? And I said, yeah, I know. He's all, I, I, I think that you need to seek out a lot of help. You need, you need a lot of help. You know, so I, I did that. And, and even so, I was, you know, all the trauma. And I remember meeting with a with a paralegal from my attorney's office. And I told her the whole story. And this lady became like, she became like a fan. She was always coming to see me and learning more about it. And she, she told me, you should write this into a book, you know. And she goes, you should tell the world your story. She, she goes, you, you've been living this pain for so long. She goes, I think by you telling your story, you can really help people and stuff because she goes, wow, you're, you're just the same thing that you said. She goes, I can't believe that you're able to stay so, str so strong in all of this. Yeah. And I go, I go, it must be in the DNA, in the blood, because there's a lot of strong men in my family. 
it must be a lot of the, 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 the learning that I, that I grew up learning and stuff. But really, I was, I was going through a lot of pain. I was going through a lot. Of, I had low self-esteem. You know, um, I, I couldn't hold on to a successful relationship with a woman. I would blow it every time. You know, a lot, I was having a lot of issues. And I was having a lot of, you know, stress-related issues. Um, sexual inadequacies was going on sometimes. Sure. All kinds of stuff, and and finally, I just decided that enough is enough, man. That I, I just wanted to to finally be free from all this pain, and and I was willing to do whatever it took. And I was talking to my mother on on the phone in, in the county jail, and I told her, "Yeah, I'm probably going to get 20 years, mom." And she's like, "Oh," and, and she didn't seem too upset about it. So. Later on, after they did my pre-sentencing report and they you put the whole thing together, they said, well, you're probably going to get anywhere from 54 to 71 months. Oh. So I, well, I go, well, that's like six years is the most then, right? And they go, yeah. So I went and called my mom. I said, hey, mom, great news. I'll, I'll, I'll probably be out in about five years because the most they can give me is six. And she was really depressed, like, oh, oh. And I go, well, what's wrong? She goes, oh, nothing. I go, just tell me, tell me. And she finally let me have it after all these years. She's just like, you have disappointed me and broken my heart, have, have put me in fear, have, have just, for so long, she goes, I've cried so many tears. She goes, I can't even cry anymore on how much you have put me through with all of this stuff. And she goes, I don't even know what's going on with you. And then I didn't even know anything about this abuse, any of that stuff that happened when you were 14. Why didn't you ever tell me any of that stuff? How come you never told me? Mm-hmm. I said, dad told me I could never tell you. <laughs> and uh, she goes, I had to find out from a probation officer because they were asking me about it. And she's like, I remember something bad happened when he was 14, but I don't exactly know the details. So, wow. you know, and, and, and then she told me, she goes, she goes, you know what? Honestly, I like it when you're in prison because at least I know where you're at. And yeah. I know that you're more safe yeah. than on the streets. And then she goes, you just need to figure out if, and I said, well, I want to change. And she's like, I'm sick. Of, I, I'm, I don't want to hear that. She goes, you always say you want to change, but she goes, you know, you'll try to change and you want to change. That never works. You have to actually do it. She goes, you have to sit there and real, you have to sit there and figure out what you stand for in life. But as long as you stand for something, that's what's important. Mm-hmm. And I remember that when she said that, as long as you stand for something, wow. that's what's important the phone with her and I wrote her a poetic letter I wrote it you know dear mom once again cold prison bars separate me from you the world from even myself I think I know that others doubt the truth of my sincerity they doubt my goals my dreams of prosperity how can I blame them for a pessimistic loss of hope when it was I who braided my own rope for I could not live without money and dope trapped in a personal hell selfish lost and afraid oh how many nights have I prayed so I wrote her this letter right <laughs> And sent it to her. Damn. And after a couple of weeks, she sent me a poetic letter back. The same way. Dear mom, I wrote her, you know, love your son. And she's like, dear son. And she said, you know, all these years I've hoped that you would ever see the crooked path could never set you free and, and love your mom. And I, I decided I go stand for something. Dear mom, dear son, stand for something. So I made a journal and I called the journal stand for something. It's going to be this. It was my stand for something. And then I put a question mark on it. Right. What am I going to stand for? So 
I started I started getting all these self-help books. I started reading all this positive material. I started getting, I mean, I even got into the Bible. I started reading the Quran even. I read, read anything and everything that had a positive message that could start pushing some of this, some of these demons, some of this pain out of me. And finally, I, I crossed out the question mark and I put stand for something life on my notebook. I'm sorry, stand for something. Stand for something life. Life, got it. Life. So I, uh, I'm standing in front of the judge now, and I'm, I'm getting ready to be sentenced, and I'm smiling, right? <laughs> and and he, he, he looks at me, and he's like, he goes, you have anything you want to say? And I said, yeah, Your Honor. I go, I think you should give me the maximum sentence. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, well, elaborate. And I said, well, because you let me out tomorrow, Your Honor, I'm just going to break the law again, and I'm going to victimize somebody. So why not keep society safe and maybe help me change my life by giving me all the time that you can give me? So he yes. gave me the max. He gave me 71 months. And he says, I, I really do hope that you do change your life. You know, I really do hope that you seek out all the help that will be provided to you. And I said, I will. And I go, when I stand before you again in the future for, you know, for probation or anything else, I go, I'll, 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 I'll have a nonprofit organization. I'll be a published author. I'll be helping people. I'll be doing all that. And he just looked at me like, okay, Mr. Rutherford. Like, yeah, I've heard it all before, right? So I go into the federal prison system, and I started seeking out all these different self-help programs. I, I went into college, and I got a, cert, a certificate in uh, business fundamentals. I worked in a furniture factory that build furniture for all these federal courthouses, chances are your ass has probably sat in a seat that I made at some point. <laughs> you've, ever, you've ever been to the Social Security office or something like that. Yeah. So I worked in this furniture factory from, from 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night every single day except for Sunday, right? And I paid every dime back that I stole from that bank, every penny. Wow. Yeah. Well, what, then I started... Like, huh? tell me, like, did you send a check? Did you walk in with it? How did you, how did you actually do that? No, they, they have, they have what's called a trust account office set up and they set up a, a, an account where they tell you, well, how much money, this is how much money we're going to take out to send to your restitution. So they were just taking half of my check, every check that I was getting. And then I was also going into the counselor's office and, and finally at the end I said, how much do I still owe? They go, you still owe about 600 bucks. And I go, okay, well, here's a, a written statement. Pull it off my account and send it to them. Because they're, they're basically like your bank. Right. How, how much how much total did you steal? Is that a curious uh, A little over four grand. It wasn't really much, but it takes a long time to make it when you're working in prison for a couple of dimes an hour. <laughs> right. That's what I was getting at. Oh, my God. All right. Okay, so... So you okay? So pick up where you last left off. So you're at the you're in prison right now, right? right? Federal prison. Um, you had mentioned on a previous call that you had learned some things about masculinity and about what it means to be a man and stuff like that from some of the other inmates. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Well, um, I learned I learned a lot of different things as far as like masculinity is concerned when I started going into this. Well, over the time, you know, the 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 male role belief of the incarcerated man is that you can't show any emotion. You can have emotion, but you can't show emotion to anyone else because it, it could it could be it could be seen as a weakness and it could be used against you. 
So you have to be like on top of your emotions and feelings all the time. And I mean, quite frank, quite honestly, though, like a man basically is should be on top of their emotions and their feelings all the time anyways, because you got to be strong. You have to be that strength in the family unit, you know, and, and in prison, it's the same thing. We all have to be strong for each other or else other groups of people or other parties or gangs inside of the prison will spot the crack in the wall and they'll beat on that crack, mm. if you know mm. what I'm saying. Yeah. So to see somebody who doesn't have their mental faculties together, doesn't have their emotions in check, their feelings in check, and is walking around sniveling and crying and, and, and all, you know, not saying that that's what sniveling and crying is is not signs of masculinity, but I'm saying that, you know, if they don't, if they demonstrate a weakness, that could be taken as a lack of masculinity in sure. prison, prison setting. Sure. But... I learned, I learned, you know, that on, on that level, it was, you know, basically keep control of your emotions, your feelings. And I mean, behind closed doors, I've, I've had a couple of, of good friends of mine on the streets die. I had both of my grandmothers died when I was in prison and I would go back in the cell and I would cry and I'd let it out. And, you know, my cellmate, of course, you know, they'd, they'd hold on to you and they'd hug you and they would consult you and stuff like that. And, it, you know, it's, People think that in prison they'd be like, "Yeah, shut your ass up, quit crying, you little sniveling baby." It's not like that. That's not what masculinity is. Masculinity is basically, you know, carrying yourself respectfully, being being strong in the face of any 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 challenge that lies before you. Mm-hmm. Any challenge that rises before you, you have to be strong. That's that's what, what masculinity is all about. Because think of, let's take it all the way back a few thousand years. How did these how did these men, you know, keep the family together during the ice age through times of great drought? You know, they were hunters and gatherers. Maybe they couldn't really find nothing for the hunt for so long. You know, they, did they get to start break down and start crying and getting all emotional and, and ball up and, and quit? If that would happen. Everybody would have died. Right. Yeah. They had to keep moving forward and they had to keep finding that inner strength, that inner heart that you like to call the beating heart. To, to, to continue to move forward and, 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 to, and to, to, to adapt to the situation and, and keep pushing and stay strong and, and keep your emotions and your feelings in check so that you could be clear-minded and rational in order to approach the situation like, okay, you know, the, there's, there's not that much game out there in the wild right now, so what am I going to do? Well, shit, I'm going to go fishing or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start growing, you know, figuring out some other way to do it. It's all about adapting and, 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 and overcoming so in, in the prison system, and that's how it's taught to us in there, it's, it's used, we, they used that old model thousands of years ago. Think of what they did in the Ice Age. Think of what they did during uh, famines and, and, and droughts. You know, how did, they, how did they adapt to those situations? Understand that prison is the same situation, only it just it's confined into a smaller space. Yeah. To be able to hold, 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 take control of your emotions and your feelings and all that stuff, and, and to adapt, and, and to not let the walls fall down in on you, like I told you that some people would do. Sure. So later on, uh, later on, I learned I learned a lot of other things too about about what masculinity means in in this in this um, new lease on life, as I like to say that I got as far as the program material and everything that I've done to better myself, is that I had a chance to learn. I'll I'll, sh- I'll show it to you. I got it right here. That gentleman right there in the middle. Uh, for those who that are just listening, 
Uh, JD's showing me a picture of a gentleman. So who is this? That's Mr. Durfee, and, and you're seeing me with the glasses right there. That's me. Okay. And the other guy is a guy named Anthony Trujillo, and, and we were his facilitators for his uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy program that we were participating in. Mm. That man right there taught me what it really means to be a man, mm. what it really means to be strong and to have honor and, and you know, to respect your woman. I mean, you don't got to put your hands all over your wife or your girlfriend to prove that you're a man. We know this. Well, yeah, I mean. A lot of people think that that's what that's how I'm demonstrating my manhood is I'm beating my I'm smacking her with the back of the hand or the you know and and this guy taught us a lot of things about you know being being a man and and, and understanding like when 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 women are, are are venting at you when they're yelling and screaming at you or when they're talking you know down to you or something like that it's it's nine out of ten times it doesn't really have much to do with you. So don't so don't bite into it and meet femininity with femininity and, and start bickering gag, 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 you know turn like a, into a cat fight. Just basically let it let 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 the emotions ride. Let them let them subside. You know comfort her, console her, listen to her. You know agree with her. Don't placate her, but agree with her. And then and then he always told me he always said that like you know a good man has a good woman next to him. And and there's an old saying that he always runs through his head every time when whenever his wife's mad at him he says a happy a happy wife is a happy life yeah so yeah i mean talks- obviously there's you, you said agree with her i would say understanding her is You're- yeah the that was one of the things i had to learn too because i did often meet that feminine storm with my own version i would react to it and and yeah, that would be you're not gonna you're not gonna resolve anything there. Where um, as a matured, I understood that when you're dealt with a feminine storm, if you will, that you anchor in. But that doesn't mean, and and I think some people think that means like being completely stoic and showing no emotion or, or disconnecting or whatever. And no. it's the no. art and science of staying. Uh, anchored while also still being present with her and understanding where she's at in the moment and really feeling that with her so that she understands that she's not, you know, out in the middle of the ocean bobbing up and down on these uh, waves, that there's actually somebody there that has a lifeline with her that's holding, you know, and grounding her. Is that, th- those are some of the metaphors that I use to help uh, articulate that. But yeah. So w- tell me more about what this uh, gentleman taught you about masculinity. Well, you know, it, it, we, we got taught a lot of about like healthy relationships and how, how to have healthy relationships with, with you know, our, our wives, our girlfriends, even even parents and people in the community. And, and to, to him, like masculinity was taught in the way of, again, you know, when, when your wife is, is, you know, having a crisis, I mean, you could you can you could comfort her. You can you could you could express your emotions. You can cry. You could do all these things. That doesn't take away from your masculinity. That actually forms that bond. And then once that bond's formed, you know, there's always that one question, like I'm sure you've heard it before, if it's in something like some kind of financial crisis, you know, she may ask you, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, now that you guys have had that bond, you're able to say, well, we're going to make it out of this. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So then she'll follow that lead. So it, it's, well, it's, it's if I could just interrupt really quickly because I there's something there that's very important that I think men need to understand. And I actually made a post about this the other day in Facebook where even if you don't know where you're going, because there are times, obviously, as men, you know, 
and and as women too, you don't necessarily know. I don't know how I'm going to bridge this gap. Like I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent this month. I don't know how I'm going to navigate this issue. But women especially are very in tune with energy, and so if a man can come to her and say, "I don't, I don't know," because you don't want to placate or you don't want to lie and say it'll all be okay or whatever, like she'll read through that. She can, right? So, but if you can go to her and say. I don't know, but I promise you we will get to get through this and you speak into it with a level of conviction and energy. Like that's what the woman picks up on and says, okay, I'm anchored here. Like obviously we're not going to necessarily know where every penny is going to come from or whatever, but I can rally behind this because I have faith and trust that he's going to figure it out because I feel his energy in, in the confidence of figuring that out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that I mean that's that's what I learned, and of course, like I said, it, it's going through the the healthy relationships to um, healthy relationships portion of this program was a lot harder for me because I'm like, well, I don't have a wife, um, I have never had a wife, so you know, I, I but I learned all the information, and it, it really helped me to to be better prepared for the day that I will, you know, because like I said, um, backing up just a little bit, going through all this. Like I said, I was paying all the money back I stole from to the bank, right? Taking all these 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 self-help programs. I went into a program called Doing Time with the Right Mind, and it was based on a lot of uh, information from Dr. Stephen Covey. I'm sure you've heard of him. Sure. Uh, eight habits or, or the seven of highly habits. seven habits of highly successful people, and then uh, Napoleon Hill. Um, a lot of him. Tony Robbins, where I mentioned Tony Robbins, that's where I got exposed to him. Yeah. And then, and then I decided to go into a more extensive live-in therapeutic type community program inside the prison. It was called RDAP, Residential Drug Abuse Program. And it was based off of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Hmm. And going into this program, it was, it was rough. I mean, I wanted to quit a couple of times. I had a lot of arguments with people. This, I'm sorry, this is while you were an inmate or after? This is why I was an inmate inside. Okay. This is my last term that I was in there. And what, what prison are you in at this point? This was a, a Florence Federal Prison in, in Colorado. In Colorado. Is this a state-run program or is this federal? Oh, it's a federal-run program. It's federal. Okay. Interesting. Federal. Okay. We, we very rarely hear positive things that come out of, uh, you know, basic the, the armchair, new, you know, information that you hear is that uh, the federal or the, you know, prison is a, uh, it's a capitalist endeavor at this point. You know, they're just looking to fill in, you know, cells or whatever. So to hear actually something positive and genuine rehabilitation is actually kind of rewarding to hear. So t tell me a little bit more about that. What was that? You didn't want to go into it, but what, what, what was it? Well, no, I, I, I volunteered because, you know, they didn't force me to go in. I volunteered to go into the program. Um, the, the, the issue with it was, is that it was so hard because you had, it was, it was teaching you things that as most people that are incarcerated convicts, accountability, responsibility, hmm. open-mindedness, objectivity, um, not to, you know, power orientate on people and, and, and humility and stuff like that. Honesty. A lot of these, these, these are principles that, that we don't have, we don't possess. So it's just kind of like a, you're like a computer, all these, you know, humility, uh, honesty, responsibility, accountability. And you're like, you're like a computer. It does not compute, does not compute. <laughs> Sparks start shooting out of your ears, you know? Right. So 
going into the program, I was just, I, it was so much, people were calling me on so much of my shit and calling me on so much of my ways and the things that I was doing and what I was doing and, and stuff. And, and I, I just kept an open mind and I learned more and more and I grew in this program. And finally I, I, I went and told one of the, the, the ladies, she was a drug treatment, DTS, they called her. I went in there and told her, her name was Miss Tucker. She's retired now. I told her, I want to share my story, you know, the story when I was 14. Yeah. She goes, we'll do it when you're ready. You know, I, I don't want to rush. I said, I want to do it now. I'm, I'm ready to go. So I was supposed to let's look, do a, what was called an autobiography, right, in front of my whole class. And our class is about maybe 15, 16 people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't work out that way at first because something happened. Next thing you know, it was it was a room of about maybe 70 people mm. inmates in a federal prison and some people from the from the um, Department of Justice in Washington DC were also sitting in it was a special thing going on and she asked she asked me she goes just a she goes just a shot in the dark Rutherford she goes I don't know if you'd want to if you want to do it or not but would you be willing to share your story now and I told her I go Absolutely, let's do it. I was so unprepared, right? But I sat there at this podium in front of all these people, and I told them that I was sexually abused, that I was held captive, and all these things. Wow. And all these men were looking at me. And, and, and various different people had different looks on their faces. Different. Some people weren't looking at me, trying not to make eye contact. Other people were, you know, nobody laughed. Nobody made any jokes because this lady, she was just like, She's just looking around, looking, looking everywhere. Like if I see one person smile, they're gone. I'll take a year. I'll kick you right out. I'll put you in the hole. Yeah. You know, one yeah. person laughs at any of this. You know. Yeah. So nobody, even everybody knew better than to laugh. If anybody laughed or made any jokes, they did it behind my back. But the the the, the point was is that it was that's what a man does. A man stands up and says, you know. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to let my feelings out. I'm going to let my emotions out. I'm going to I'm going to talk about things that aren't comfortable and I'm going to mo- I'm going to persevere through it. I'm going to move forward beyond this. This is no longer what I'm doing is I'm releasing this this stress, this burden off of my chest and I am letting it out into the universe and I'm dis- I'm I'm dissolving it right there as we speak. It no longer has any bearing on my life. It no longer affects me in any way shape or form. And it no longer defines who I am. And I could sit here and talk openly. Yes, I was sexually abused. Yes, a whole lot of horrible things happened to me as a boy. Yes, I was forced to have sex with another boy. Yes, all these things. Does it make me a homosexual? Does it make me a bad person? Does it make me like some people would say a sinner or whatnot? No, it doesn't. I was a child who was sexually and physically abused and I had no choice. Mm -hmm. But the thing of it is now, what do I do now with it? What is the solution to moving forward? And the solution to moving forward is to talk about it and to let it out and to give it back because maybe there might be somebody out there that's listening to your show that might benefit from hearing this. It might be wanting like, you know what, I want what I want what that guy's got. I want to I want to I want to know how more about how he did it. Somebody might want to reach out to me, and that's why I'm here. Because I want to help people get through this. There's so many people, there's so many men out there that have been that have been abused, that have been hiding it all their lives. And it's been killing them. Yeah, dude. I, you know, I 
I mean, this whole conversation, I'm like on the edge of my seat, and I'm I'm like goosebumps from our, our, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm so inspired by what you are, where you've been, and what you have persevered through, and to bring that message with the with you know walk on the walk. Damn, dude. I, I, there's a reason why we connected. I, you know, because I, I was thinking about it the other day. I'm like, I never check my LinkedIn stuff and whatever. And for whatever reason, I, I this this is a story that needs to be heard. This is a message that needs to be heard. This is the right time. Like our, you know, I just have a lot in my head right now that I don't. I'm I'm, I'm very <laughs> usually lost for words, but I'm I'm a little uh, I'm a little tongue tied at the minute. Um. I will say this though, I think that there is a, when I think of, I've done a lot of research and focus on masculine and feminine energy and, and one of the best way, which, you know, obviously a lot of people think in terms of men and women, as opposed to it being an energy source where, you know, women have masculine energy and feminine energy, men have masculine energy and feminine energy, but to make it a little bit easier to kind of understand and navigate, I think of it in terms of backbone and heart. And you talked a little bit about in the prison system how, you know, you couldn't show any heart, essentially. You couldn't show any emotion because it was perceived as a weakness. It was all just backbone, which I would call, in other word, as strength or truth. And uh, I find that um, there's a lot of men who are too much only backbone. And I would imagine in that kind of system, in that kind of environment, you only have the stoic anchored backbone without any empathy. Well, I mean, obviously behind closed doors, like you shared that there were cellmates and stuff where you could actually express emotion in a safe way. But I think some men carry it too far where they, they're not in control of their emotions. They're suppressing their emotions. And that to me is where you get the cruelty. It's where you get the anger. It's where you get that inner rage that doesn't know that bubbles up and it just has nowhere to go. And it just spills out as opposed to what you're kind of talking about too, You've mentioned this several times, like let it move through you, let it come out. There's a strength to being open. There's a strength to having heart. There's a strength to being passionate and emotional and not um, in a way where you're not out of control with it. Because everything that you're talking about is being emotional, but it's also anchored with the backbone of, of strength and clarity so that it's not this like emotional vomit or, or, or out of control wildfire rage. Um, it's that symbiotic relationship between the two and a balanced blend of the two where you find, and this is true for women too. Like I just had a conversation yesterday with a woman who's a career oriented. She's a badass. She's kicking, you know, kicking ass and taking names and, and she's having a hard time opening up. So it's, it's women deal with the exact same thing too, where it, it may be just too much on one side or the other. I think that's, um, important to note, but, um, I'm so inspired by your story and uh, dude, I, I was welling up when you were talking about stand for something. Cause I knew that that was the name of your, of your, uh, of your program, of your book or whatever. So on that note, actually, I, I know that there are people that are listening to this going, I've got to talk to you, JD. So where do we, where does somebody go to get in contact with you and where can they find out more about, you know, what you're working on and what you've been writing, et cetera. Well, they can, they can find me at my website at www.standforsomething.life. It's funny because when I, when I took out that little GoFund or that GoDaddy page, I'm looking at, you know, www.standforsomethinglife.com. 
Well, I couldn't get it for some reason. StanfordSomethingLife.org, couldn't get it. Stanford something, and then finally it was like StanfordSomething.life. And I'm just like, I could get that? Okay, I'll go with that. Yeah. So it's www.StanfordSomething.life. You can also find me on, um, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can, you can add under J.D. Rutherford. You can find me on Facebook under J.D. Rutherford. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Twitter, you can find me at, at J.D. underscore Rutherford at Twitter. And these, these are some of the places you can find me. Okay. I also have a P.O. box. You can send me mail if you want. You mentioned um, that you've done a lot of work with uh, mothers whose sons are incarcerated, and you've helped them with that. I think that's an incredible service right then and there. Um, so if somebody's listening to this and they're a mother, J.D.'s been an incredible um, support through through that. Um What's the P.O. box if they want to write you? Yeah, the P.O. box is Stand for Something Life, P.O. box 744, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73101. Sorry, the, the zip code's different than my other zip code. Right. 73101. So, yeah, P.O. box, Stand for Something Life, P.O. box 744, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73101. Oh man, that's great. What um if I could ask you is your is your mother still with us? No. Okay. Um my, my mother my mother passed away 6 months before my release. Oh wow. She, she had a stage stage 4 cancer. Um me and her it's funny that, that you bring it up and it's I don't mean to bounce all over the place, but it's it's I think everything has its own right place in in this whole conversation that we had yeah um and going through this program and stuff and and while i was going through this program it's funny you mentioned my mom because when i was going through this program when i was paying the bank all the money i owed him when i was taking all these self-help things i was in in the federal prison system you actually have a computer where you can get email from your loved ones you can't go to to the to the internet or anything like that of course but it's it's kind of like a cutoff server uh -huh. where it's connected to a, a server in the BOP the Bureau of Prisons and it's 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 kind of like looped it's routed like they'll they'll route your mail through there and it'll come to you but that's as far as you can go as that server if you know if that makes sense mm -hmm. so we get email in there and I was always having my mom look up all these different things and I was I taught her how to copy and paste stuff so she didn't have to type it all out and I'm like mom go to this page go to that page copy paste copy paste thousands and thousands of pages of, of, of emails of you know the seven habits of highly affected people write them all down the 48 laws of power the 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 11 principles you know 17 keys to success all these different things and my mom is like what are you doing in there you know what's all this stuff that I'm looking up and all these different you know different yoga and 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 uh meditation and, and and all this all this stuff and my mom started getting really involved in the criminal justice reform stuff because i had her going to places like fam criminal justice reform sentencing news uh criminal justice reform project uh prison reform projects all these different things and she started to then she started to she was involved in the newsletter and she was communicating with other people and the whole time we were writing these poems remember these dear mom dear son poems back and forth and and she's like, why don't we put the, put it together and make like a chapbook or an anthology? And I said, okay. 
So then she's like, well, let's let's start writing memoirs in between each exchange. So we started writing memoirs talking about how we were feeling during each exchange. And we we ended up writing all the way until when she told me she had cancer. And she actually revealed her cancer to me in, in a poem, right? So then we talked and, and she's like, oh, I'm going to beat it. But then as time went on, it was it appeared that she wasn't going to beat it. And a couple of weeks before she died, she goes, I just wanted to tell you that for the first time in my life, I'm proud of you. She goes, I can't believe that you have you've done everything that you've done and, and all the programs. She goes, I, I've been dreaming about you. I see you speaking in front of large crowds. I see you doing this. I see you doing that. And um, she uh, she goes, she goes, I want you to make a promise to me. I said, what? What, mom? She goes, I want you to promise that you'll publish our book. And I said, I, I thought I was already, she's like, no, I want you to publish it and I want you to share it with the world. She goes, I think every single mother in the world needs to read that book. And I said, okay. I said, I, I said, I'll, 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 I said I'll, I'll do it, mom, I'll do it. I was getting ready to say I'll try, but I told her, I'll, I'll do it, mom, I'll do it. She goes, I can't, I can't, I told her, I can't promise you how well it'll do, but I'll at least put it out there in the universe. And she goes, she goes, oh, it's going to be fine. I, I already know. And she goes, also, she goes, everything that you've been doing, everything that you've learned, she goes, I want you to put that to work and I want you to teach other people how to get out of prison and stay out. Teach these guys how to be better men. You know? And I said, okay, mom, I promise. I go, but if we're going to do this book, mom, you got to put out that one last poem because we're at 19 poems. You're, you got the last word. She says, I'll, I'll, I'll write it. And she wrote it from her hospice bed. Wow. And then she died two weeks later. Oh, my God. This, this is the book right here. Uh, pull it back a little bit. Dear mom, dear son, separated by bars, but not the heart. Oh, man. Yep, this is our book. You can find that on Amazon.com as well. So, and then, and then, like I said, I'm, and think of it now. When, when I got out, I, I, I was released with, with nothing but $38 in the shirt on my back. I was dropped in the middle of Oklahoma City. I've never lived here. My only connection was I was driving through the state of Oklahoma on my way to Arkansas and I robbed a bank. So, I mean, I've never lived here. I didn't have any family here. I didn't know anybody here because my mom died. I had nowhere to go. I had no residence to, to, to release to. So the federal government just dropped me on the streets of where the crime was committed, which was Oklahoma City. Oh, my God. Yeah. It just literally dropped you on the street. Literally dropped a, a, a career criminal, gang member, um, bank robber. With $38 and some, some flip, where are my flip-flops? <laughs> I still have those flip-flops right here. I still wear them. Flip-flops, the shirt on his back and 38 bucks in a, in, a, in, a, in a duffel bag. And I had no idea what I was going to do, where I was going to go, how I was going to be successful. So everything, all my goals of, write, of, of, of authoring this book and, and putting together a program to help people develop successful reentry strategies, I had to first show that it worked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just some, I'm just some knucklehead off the bus with some shower shoes. I'm like, yeah, this is how you achieve success. It's like, dude, you don't even have a house. <laughs> you don't have a pair of shoes, man. How are you going to teach anybody anything? So I'm like, okay, I go, this is what I'm going to do. I set a goal. And, and I'm going to tell you, like, this goals are very important to all of us. I set a goal. I said, I'm going to go one whole solid year of doing everything and, and, and achieving all these goals and getting a roof over my head, getting a good job, getting money saved, getting a car. And then once that's all been done, then I'm going to show up and go, yo, 
here's what I did and here's how you could be successful. And that's what I did. I, I did. I went a whole year. Um, like I said, I went to this halfway house. I showed up at the front door. I didn't have any direction. didn't know where I was going to go. I started out as a dishwasher in a five-star restaurant hotel washing dishes. And I showed up to this interview, right? <laughs> I showed up to this interview. Um, this guy who interviewed me was, was our executive chef. His name is Jason Campbell. And, and uh, Mary Eddie's Kitchen and Lounge inside the 21C Hotel. And I showed up to this interview with sweatpants on, a, a, a dress shirt that they found that, that somebody had left behind that had a coffee stain on the sleeve and ring around the collar so bad that it looked like it was a separate stripe of color on it. And shower shoes. And that's how I showed up to the interview. And I told him, just give me a chance, sir. I'll be the best dishwasher you ever had. And he goes, well, you'll be a steward, but you'll be washing dishes. I go, well, I'll be the best this hotel's ever seen. And he goes, okay. And I said, I want to be a chef. I want to be a cook. I want to, you know, I want to move up in the company. He goes, well, let's just see how you how you do being a steward first. So I went in there, man. I busted my ass in that place. And when I first on my first day of work, I showed up in those shower shoes to work because I didn't have any shoes. Mm -hmm. And a guy told me, he goes, here, man, I'm going to give you a pair of my old boots that are in the back. And he put some boots on my feet. And I started in this place as a dishwasher. I worked my way up to a line cook. And now I'm a line cook, and I'm, I've almost been at this place for two years. Hell yeah, dude. Every every chapter of your life is so inspiring that, oh, my God, like, right. this is this is one of those conversations where I, I know that I'm going to, like, download some stuff later where, our, where things are going to start to just fire off and... Um, there's there's just so much that you have to give and you're you're obviously doing that I, i'm i'm so inspired man this is like i said i'm i'm very rarely speechless but this is um this has been an incredible conversation i know that this is going to have an impact with the people that are listening um and uh i know that man that story with your mom and you're you're healing a lot of hearts man so I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a supporter, man. I, I'll, you're, you know, stand for something, dude. You're standing on top of a mountain right now, and and uh, appreciate everything that you shared with us, and and your strength and your courage to share, you know, some of the the shadow stuff you've been through. But, um, yeah, what an incredible conversation, JD. This has been fantastic, fantastic. Uh, stand for life. I'm sorry. Stand for what's the website again? Stand for something. It's it's stand for something dot life. Stand for something dot life. And there's uh, other links on there that'll that'll take you to different places where you can find me throughout the the universe of social media. Yeah. Well, you and I have more conversations to have. I, I just as you've been talking today, there's other things I want to talk to you about, and um, anything that I can do to help support your cause. I, you know, I one of the things that I just really love to do is shine the light on people that, that, um, have a message like yours and that are making an impact like yours. And so anything I can do to help shine that light brighter or amplify this message louder or whatever, you know, let me know and, and get this, get this well, word I, out. I would love to continue to come on, come on your show because there's just so much, so much that needs to be talked about. Yeah. Uh, I just tried to give it to you and all in a condensed version, just all the fine points. And I actually have a bunch of notes sitting right here of what everything I was going to highlight. 
So I hope I hope the flow was nice and steady, and I hope we didn't you know lose the the, the listener at all. Oh, I guarantee you. Yeah, yeah, we did not. <laughs> I guarantee that. Because, I mean, there's there's so much. It's like I said when I one thing that I wanted to real touch on real fast before we go. Um, when I had shared that about myself, and this this should give a lot of people some hope, is that if you share something about what you went through, sexual abuse or anything like that. You will be surprised at how many people will be able to empathize with you because I'm sitting there sharing this and <laughs> um, have you ever seen the Green Mile? Yeah. You remember big old giant John Coffey? Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm walking to my cell and this big old guy looks like John Coffey walks right up to me and he goes, hey man, can I talk to you for a minute? Step inside the, step inside the cell and I go, okay. You know, and I'm, and like I said, I don't really fear people because, I, you know, it, it's intimidating. But fear is, you know, you have to squash it because, in inside of there. So I went into survival mode. I was kind of like look surveying the area, what was going to happen. I didn't know what I did wrong. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what the hell it was about. Yeah. I was willing to go into the cell. This guy's guy shut the door. He's towering over me, and and he sits down and he and he, and he says, uh, I was there to hear what you had to say. And I go, okay. I go, what's up? And he goes, and he started crying. He goes, he goes, I was sexually abused too wow. as a kid. Wow. And then he started crying and he started going through it all and stuff like that. And, and, and he's like, why do they have to do this to us and, and everything? And I hugged this dude. Tried to hug him. I mean, I couldn't get my arms all the way. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm oh, hey, man. I mean, I was, I was there for the guy. But it was just such a beautiful thing, and, and he goes, "Thank you for sharing that." He goes, "You really helped me change my life," and and that right there is what it's all about. That's what Stand for Something Life is all about, is to be able to empathize with each other, and and that's why my material. I mean, you talked about it. You said, "Well, you only reaching out to people that are incarcerated," and yeah. you know, I said, "No, this is for anybody and everybody," because I believe that every single one of us, you know, for the most for 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 either. Uh, a larger or smaller degree, we live in an incarcerated state of mind. Mm -hmm. We are incarcerated by something, you know. And 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 a lot of us, by using these these techniques and these tools, goal setting, um, you know, positive self talk, rational self analysis, accountability, um, um, perseverance, objectivity, open mindedness, willing to listen to the next person. A lot of people don't listen to the next person. Mm -hmm. Listen to what they got to say. Those people give you a lot of good feedback about how they perceive you that might be able to help you. So these are a lot of things that stand for something life is is working on. And, and, and people like that gentleman there, I'm not going to say his name, of course, but people like that gentleman there, people like, you know, various different, my mothers, I call them, that are, you know, the, the prisoners um, uh, support groups online that I've reached out and talked to their to their sons. Are, are living proof that this this work right here can work for anybody and everybody and it's like it's touching you it can touch anybody yeah I, the, the, you know the resounding message that you have as well as like no excuses I mean the stuff you've been through and have uh, risen above uh, is such a great example of what's possible um, with you know there's just no excuses you've you've had everything against you at various points in your life, various points in your life, and you've been able to persevere. And, and as you said earlier, I mean, that's a real mark of true masculinity to overcome those obstacles. Uh, I'm humbled just talking to you, man. It's been an incredible pleasure.
Yeah. JD, thank you so much. All right. I mean, I mean, think about it. Like, goals are the biggest, most important step for all of us because with when we achieve goals, we develop more uh, self-esteem and self-respect and, and, and a sense of accomplishment. Because mm-hmm. you remember what I like? I told the judge when I was first in front of him that I'm going to save lives. I'm going to do all this and that. Oh, right. Yeah. Did you? Well, here I am now. Now I am officially. We filed for our stand for something. Life Solutions is officially a file filed for nonprofit status. Oh yeah. We are in the process of getting 501 CE going. I'm a published author and I'm saving lives. So guess what I get to tell this judge? You haven't it, done that yet. What? No, not yet. Oh my! Uh, it's coming. Let me know when that's coming. <laughs> I wanna. I wanna I'm, see that. Hey, you. I might even invite you to the court. Dude, I would love love <laughs> to see that. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, man. Well, uh, J.D., again, I appreciate you, brother. I, I thank you for the stand that you're making. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely keep this conversation going for sure. Absolutely. And anybody that anybody that, that asks you that needs to connect with me or something like that, you know, feel free to throw them my way. I'm willing to, to open up, talk to anybody, and, and help them, you know, achieve their dreams because it's that's what it's all about, yep. standing for something life. It's all about standing up for life itself and making matters and, and the world a better place for each and every one of us. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Will do. By example, stand proud, stand strong, stand for something. And that's what our motto is. Got nothing left to say, man. Love it. Appreciate it. Thanks again, JD. No problem.